Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Mornings with Carmen LeBurge, but it is Mornings without Carmen LeBurge this morning. It, it is, happens that way. It does. I'm sure you can tell by the sound of my voice that I'm not Carmen LeBurge. I am Peter Capster and delighted to be back in studio with all of you listening this morning as we wake up. And Paul Perot, you as well. It is bone chilling mind-numbing cold out ah, there this come morning. Come on, it's five below here in the Twin Cities. Oh, you're saying I'm getting a little like soft. It's 21 at the below up in Fargo. It is 21 below. I was With wind chills down near 40 below. It uh, is very you know? cold. I was I was thinking about how cold it is around the Midwest this morning, and uh, our listeners in Hartford this morning where it's 36 degrees, that if I was to wake up and have a devotion this morning, that is one thing to be grateful for in Hartford is that I'm not in Fargo. So. Well, they're going to get some colder weather. It'll be in the 20s tomorrow, but hey, did you get a few days ago? They hit a record, 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 record high for January. I have been watching that. Seventy yeah, degrees. Yeah, something to miss in January about that kind of weather in Hartford. Well, it is great to be back in studio with all of you here as we start our day. And Paul, you know, I have been overseas with my family a bit over the last couple of months. They're doing a sort of a homeschool semester abroad, as it were, with some friends of ours over there that sort of have taken us in and a delightful time. But I can still. You were there just a few days. ago. Yes. I can still smell the hag. <laughs> it does sort of have a way of, of sticking with you in interior and, and exterior as well. And I, I was uh, meeting with a pastoral friend in uh, Edinburgh about a week ago or so. He's a 32-year-old guy. Mm-hmm. And uh, he sort of had this capacity somehow to move effortlessly between quotes from St. Augustine to Calvin to C.S. Lewis and, and obscure works from C.S. Lewis that I'd never even heard of to modern atheist sociologist. I was just... I was dumbfounded. No surprise to you, he was quite a bit brighter than I was, even at the age of, of 32. Holding my tongue. And holding your tongue. But one of the things that I really appreciated is he said, you know, Peter, we have already moved past uh, sort of Christendom here in Europe, meaning Christianity as a social power. It really doesn't have that uh, influence or effect. And so we're having to try to find ways to live as Christians in a world that is no longer Christendom. And he said, and you've already lost sort of the cultural battle in the United States as well. You just don't know it yet. You need to prepare yourselves there in the United States for life when you no longer have the social power that you once did. And as part of that, and I'm going to read this this morning, he sent me a a letter that I hadn't heard of, again, a relatively obscure letter from the second century. And it is a letter, the author is unknown, but it's called A Letter to Diognetus. And, uh, And I started reading through all of this about the idea that you and I talk about sometimes, that we are people of this world, but we actually find our citizenship in heaven, as Paul would say. Right. So here's the letter to start out with, and this will lead us into a good conversation with Ben Johnson in just a minute. Jim Bilby will be in here later in the morning as well, and we'll talk about life in sort of this post-Christendom world. But the letter reflects so much of the invitation I think we have in the future. The, the author says this, Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak some strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based on reveries inspired by men. And unlike some people, they champion no purely human doctrine. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in. And yet, 
there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role of citizens, but they labor as if they are aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. They live in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They are obedient to the laws, and yet they live on a level that transcends the law. And the letter goes on for there. I'll read some other excerpts later this morning. But I think it really is an invitation as we deal with some of the political headlines mm-hmm. that we'll deal with this this morning and some of the troubling events of our world to remember truly that our citizenship is in heaven. And up next here on Mornings with Carmen, it's Ben Johnson, who does write often from this perspective and looking forward to that conversation with him. So stay with us. This is my right, a right given by God, to live a free life, to live in freedom. Ten minutes past the top of the hour here on the 16th of January. I am substituting for Carmen LeBurge. I'm Peter Kapsner and delighted to be joined at this time by Ben Johnson, regular Thursday morning contributor here uh, from the Acton Institute. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, Peter. Good to be with you. Yeah, it's always great to hear your voice again. Love our conversations. And you were telling me off air that uh, this letter to Diognetus, to which I just read an excerpt and referenced here before the break, that this is one of your favorites. It is. You know, the Anti-Nicene Fathers or the Apostolic Fathers uh, are wonderful reading. And uh, this letter in particular, and especially the quotation that you chose from it, tell us that we have obligations to the country where we find ourselves, uh, but at the same time, our true obligation is to those who share our faith around the world and ultimately uh, to all those through all the ages who are part of the universal Christian church. Yeah, it's part of what I enjoy about being a part of a show like this. And as we reference some of the cities where I know people are listening, that there really is a bond of brotherhood and sisterhood that exists in our community of Christian faith that does transcend the events of this world, right? Yes, and I think that that's a sense that we may have lost too often through various filters and the way that we see ourselves, whether it's through intersectional filters or ethnic or class filters. When it comes down to it, our, our ultimate identity is not as... Uh, American citizens. It's not as uh, members of a certain ethnic group or a certain age group or other cohorts. Uh, our ultimate identity is as children of God, and uh, our fellow citizens are those who share that label. And hopefully, it will be everyone who uh, encounters us will will find a reason to share that label with themselves and to accept Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's well said. Well, in light of that, and from that sort of perspective, let's get to some of the headlines of the day that you and I can talk through. And I know I was watching a bit of the news last night and woke up this morning, and, and uh, I would hardly call it a scandal of epic proportions, but there is something out there called Pengate, apparently, uh, related to the articles of impeachment that were sent forth yesterday. So tell us about what happened there and, and what's taking place. Yeah, so uh, Nancy Pelosi, after holding the articles of impeachment for several weeks, finally had them sent over to the Senate. And as part of the uh, act, she has to sign certain acts of legislation. When she did that, she used multiple pens and she had them sitting out like party favors, these sort of gold encrusted pens. Uh, And she signed one letter at a time and would set it aside so that those would be given to uh, people who were favorable to her. Now, what ultimately these pens are going to be used for, who knows? They could be used as party fundraisers. For people who give a certain amount to the Democratic Party, they get one of these impeachment pens. Uh, But regardless, uh, what this does is sort of uh, put the line to the idea that uh, this is a process that is somber, prayerful, 
regret, uh, regrettable in every uh, instance. Uh, but uh, I think anyone who believed that was probably not paying a lot of attention beforehand. Yeah, this certainly is something that does take place, but typically it's in ceremonies of celebration. Both the Republicans and the Democrats do that indeed, but uh, apparently sort of the low-level scandal that it is is that uh, it, it seemed to represent a bit of hypocrisy that we sometimes find on each side of the political aisle of this somber, as you referenced, this this very important event, and yet there's a sort of the celebration around it. And Ben, speak to the idea of what that does to our faith and in institutions. There's a few different things you and I are going to talk about this morning, but they all sort of circle around what is the eroding faith in institutions. When we see this kind of hypocrisy like that on either side of the political aisle, we're sort of in a rolling our eyes moment as a society. Uh, I think that we've been in full eye roll for decades in this country, and uh, I think that it's intensified. It probably began with Bill Clinton. Uh, I think it was uh, several of his uh, supporters in Hollywood, and particularly Dennis Miller comes to mind, where he said you know, he generally had a, a favorable opinion of uh, Bill Clinton early on, but he said by the time his uh, presidency was over, he didn't even believe it when he said, my name's Bill Clinton. You know, he, he, he just, he had that kind of a, an effect. And uh, then we had the, the Iraq war, which uh, eroded people's belief in uh, the uh, assessment that Colin Powell made at the United Nations, the idea that uh, intelligence agencies would either mislead or be misled uh, in the process of uh, trying to uh, go to war. And then uh, everything that we've been through for the last several years where seemingly we're in a post-fact, post-reality world. Uh, when you have that kind of a situation, it does nothing but erode our trust in leaders. Uh, it does nothing but bring down our belief that uh, the government represents us, and instead it makes it look as though our, polit our political leaders are simply uh, looking out for themselves uh, and that quite often uh, public opinion is being molded or shaped uh, to predetermined ends to serve them rather than them serving the people. Yeah, and we see that playing itself out in other headlines as well beyond the Penn Gate. We see it on the Republican side of the aisle in the state of New Jersey. There is a case of public corruption heading to the Supreme Court at this time, and it didn't have to do with corruption for financial gain. It, it did have to do with corruption to sort of gain power over a political opponent. So tell us about what we're looking forward to seeing in this case coming in front of the Supreme Court. Right. And uh, you know, in the Supreme Court, this uh, deals with Governor Chris Christie, former governor of the uh, state of New Jersey. Uh, you may remember that he closed down uh, uh, certain uh, certain uh, lanes in the highway going into the George Washington Bridge, which, of course, one of the most traveled areas in the entire country uh, in 2013, created a major headache uh, for the people who were commuting into and out of New York City, but it also created a major headache for uh, the political leaders of Fort Lee, New Jersey, who did not support him politically. And as it turned out, this was his intention all along. Three people uh, are serving or, or have been sentenced to jail time because of their role in closing down multiple lanes of traffic in order to get back at one of their political enemies. They have argued at the Supreme Court that they're not guilty of corruption. They were they were convicted of corruption, but they said this is not corruption because the statute says that money has to change hands, and we didn't personally benefit from this. This was simply something we did to punish our political enemies. Mm. We're, no harm, no foul. So uh, the idea that uh, this was harmless, I think, is ridiculous. One person who was actually in an ambulance died because of the traffic jam. Uh, so the idea that this was a victimless crime is ridiculous. A politician has a charge to serve all of his constituents. He's an employee or she is an employee elected to look after the well-being of everybody, not their own political um, private interests. Corruption turns politics from service into a form of plunder where politicians with the wealthiest forces in society end up swapping favors back and forth. And the only thing that elections seem to settle is which set of elites put their hand in the till for how many years. 
So I think you saw that this uh, this ultimately drove uh, drew, drove down the uh, in the Old Testament. King David had a heart like the Lord's, but King Solomon, his children served their own passions, mm. and the kingdom was divided and eventually destroyed as a result of of that inner circle of corruption deepening into ever tighter circles. So uh, I I hope that uh, we end up having a good uh, result uh, in the Supreme Court. I never thought I'd say this. If the justices rule that this isn't a criminal matter, and perhaps this is the wrong statute uh, for them to be convicted under, but if they rule that this is not a criminal matter, I never thought I'd say this. I hope some enterprising trial lawyer files a class action lawsuit on behalf of everybody who was late to work or missed their kid's piano recital or lost a family member because justice has to prevail here. Mm, Spent Johnson of the Acton Institute. Ben, before we go to a short break here, maybe in 30 seconds or so, how do we as believers then respond to all of this? And in light of the reading of Diognetus and, and what we've talked about, how do we interact with this situation? Uh, John the Baptist told Roman soldiers, be content with your wages, which is to say, do your duty. So those who are in positions of authority should do their duty. Those of us who are citizens have to hold them accountable. And when they do not, either vote them out of office or take whatever appropriate means are, are uh, called for, including legal means against those who have broken the law in their public charge. That's great stuff, Ben. When we come back from a short break here in just a minute, we'll change the topic over to the National Health Service of the United Kingdom because it does per- give us a sense of a, a model and what we could anticipate if we do embrace Medicare for all, all in our country, as some of the Democratic candidates are suggesting. And I actually had a, a pretty significant experience with the NHS while we were over there this last month. So I'll reflect on that and get your thoughts on that next year on Mornings with Carmen. <laughs> Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner, subbing for the day and delighted, as always, to be joined by Ben Johnson, our Thursday morning guest here on the show. And Ben, I was looking at some of the headlines and seeing that there's some troubles in the United Kingdom's vaunted National Health Care Service. And I think that gives us an idea of some trouble we might run into if we do go to Medicare for all. And I can speak to it personally in the sense that it was about a month ago that one of my own family members, we needed to, to spend two nights in the hospital there. And I will say this that uh, there are some of the very nicest people, great staff, competent, and, and again, lovely to work with. But it was interesting to watch in the underfunding of it that the, the supply level in the hospital was such and so low that uh, two things took shape. One, they only had uh, two pints of blood that we could use for the situation that we were in. And uh, number two, there was literally not a Band-Aid to be found in the entire ward. They call them sticky plasters over there. There was not a sticky plaster to be found. And that didn't seem unusual. So. I love the idea of the Medicare for all that people are taking care of, but when it's put into action and run by the government, if this is the shining example globally of it, I can say that from firsthand experience, uh, it wasn't the best situation. Uh, clearly not. I, my heart goes out to the members of your family who had to deal with that situation. And as I say, I've never had, uh, I've never heard of a situation where they were that low on such basic supplies. But yeah. unfortunately, the the only thing that I can say is that. Uh, unfortunately, you are far from alone in that situation. The NHS just reported its worst, uh, its worst uh, in, in terms of uh, in terms of its performance. It was the worst month in history last month, and they're getting used to that because November was the worst month in history before that, and before that, October was the worst month in their history. Hundreds of thousands of people waited more than four hours in emergency rooms just to get admitted uh, before they could be treated. 
uh, 2,000 people waited more than 12 hours, and there were several people who ended up waiting inside ambulances because they couldn't get into the emergency room. So you have this entire line of, of uh, converging lines that simply back one another up. Uh, it, has, it has cost people's lives uh, over and again throughout the history of the of the NHS, and yet the NHS actually enjoys something of a quasi-religious status in the UK. Uh, the former Chancellor of the Exchequer said that uh, the NHS is the closest thing the English people have to a national religion. Uh, in the 2012 Olympics, when they had the opening, they saluted the NHS. So uh, the NHS it just enjoys this marvelous reputation with its with its own people, and yet when it comes to where the rubber meets the road, when it comes to actually delivering on healthcare results, uh, you see that, in fact, tens of thousands of people lose their lives needlessly. Uh, just to quote one statistic, uh, my friend uh, Christian Nemitz of the uh, Institute of Economic Affairs in London said that lung cancer and uh, bowel cancer patients, if they'd been treated in the Netherlands instead of the NHS. And this is a, another system that's a national healthcare system, but they have a little bit more of a market uh, a dynamic there. They have private sector hospitals. 9,000 people would live instead of die if they had been treated there, just uh, from people who have breast cancer, prostate cancer, lung cancer, and bowel cancer. So just those four situations themselves cost 9,000 lives because of the fact that the NHS necessarily requires rationing whenever you have a single-payer health care system. And when the government does rationing, that means that you don't get treated. You, in, in the private sector, your health insurance may deny uh, coverage of it. And you can always go out and, and pay out of pocket. You can have a fundraiser. Virtually every uh, fast food or convenience store that I go into has a jar that they're taking up money for someone for their medical bills. And uh, yet in the UK, since it's all government run, if they say no, you can't do that because uh, there, there's no place else to go. If you go into the private sector, uh, then uh, there, there's uh, occasionally you can you can get treated in the private sector. But if you're already in the system, uh, they can simply deny you and refuse to transfer you to another unit, as happened to Alfie Evans and Charlie Gard. So it's a dangerous system and one that is unnecessarily costing lives because of the way that it's set up. If we import it here, we're importing trouble. Mm, ben, we just have a couple minutes left here. I'd be curious. So what would be maybe a helpful resolution to this in the sense that I know there's a very understandable objection to our current system in the United States that oftentimes the least and the lost are not provided for, and it's sort of the wealthy that give the best care. But we also see the flip side of it. If you try to provide care for all, it really it might sound great ideologically, but it doesn't play itself out well practically. So is there some sort of middle ground solution in all of this that you would suggest? Uh, I think that uh, there are a couple of things. First of all, I would challenge the idea that uh, the poor are not provided for. I think that uh, Medicaid actually does a wonderful job, in, uh, for the most part, of providing for the needs of the very poor. The people who really suffer in this is the, are the middle class because their insurance premiums go up or they lose coverage. They're not able to uh, provide. Uh, they're not able to afford it on the Obamacare market. So they're the ones who really are squeezed because – uh, Medicaid reimburses at a lower or at a lower uh, a lower rate, and so the middle class ends up having to uh, make up the difference because they pay higher bills, uh, and they are not able to afford it as the rich are. So I think that's the real uh, locus of trouble in our current system. I would say the number one thing that we can do is to try and make all of this uh, transparent to the greatest extent possible, to let people know what's being charged, why they're charging it, and uh, to the extent that is possible, have direct care. Uh, there's one system that uh, is very popular in a certain area in Georgia that I wrote about for the Heartland Institute several years ago, where uh, very simply you pay a service to a doctor and he is essentially your doctor on call. Anything that you need within a certain basket of services, he will provide. You don't have insurance, 
he takes care of you as your private doctor, as in the old days uh, when doctors would make house calls. So it's a return to that sort of idea. To the extent that we can get insurance out of the system and have transparency, I think that's the answer. No, that's great stuff as always, Ben. Uh, if listeners are listening this morning and want to find more of your work, where can they go to see uh, sort of the full articles that you're referring to here this morning? blog.acton.org. That's A-C-T-O-N dot O-R-G. Love it. Have a great uh, rest of the day and rest of the weekend ahead, Ben. Always good to hear your voice. Thanks so much. God bless, Dr. Kapsner. We'll uh, take a short break, and when we come back, uh, we'll be joined by Drew Fernelius, who is a tennis coach at Bethel University. Carmen and I had a chance to have a conversation yesterday about the lack of mentoring of our young men in our society. And so I'm going to talk with Drew a bit about what he finds and sees in his four years with young men as he has a chance to be not just their coach, but their mentor as well. So one of the things we talk about in most of the classes that I teach over at the University of Northwestern with the young students is how do you begin to unlock what the biblical text really says and means? Because it can be a little bit mysterious from time to time when you get in some of the passages. And I think one of the most helpful things you can do is simply just get a, a good study Bible that has notes that uh, sort of enhance and begin to explain further maybe what the scriptures are saying. And so here at Faith Radio, we are doing a Charles Spurgeon study Bible giveaway. And in that, you can see a lot of his notes and sermon illustrations. There's a biography of him. But most importantly, you're going to get some insight into some of the passages of Scripture that may otherwise be relatively confusing. So we're giving away one copy each week this month, and you can enter to win at MyFaithRadio.com. Teens do a lot of empty-headed communicating, especially by cell phone, IM, Facebook, and text. In fact, it's not unusual to see a group of teens sitting in the same room sending text messages to one another instead of just having normal conversations. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Yeah, this new generation knows how to communicate, but they don't always know how to make a personal connection. It's not something they'll learn unless you make it a point to teach them. So open your home for an evening of food and fun. Challenge them to leave their cell phones in their pockets. Look for a way to model for your teen the value of connecting with friends and family without defaulting to their electronics. Looking for more parenting wisdom? Go online to parentingtodaysteens.org or search for Parenting Today's Teens in your favorite app store. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Peter Kapsner, substituting for today and tomorrow for Carmen LaBerge. She is away in Arizona, nice warm Arizona, Paul Perot, with some family members here. So we're oh, dealing yeah. with minus 5 weather here, and uh, it's minus 20 set up in Fargo? Minus 21-ish, yeah, somewhere around there. Yeah, and, so, and Carmen, I think, is going to be about 75 degrees or so maybe in Arizona today. Doesn't so. just call you? Yeah, you know, it really does. <laughs> you and I may not be spiritual enough to be able to handle this as well as we might like, but uh, one person I know that might be spiritual enough to handle is a good friend of mine, uh, Drew Fernelius, who is the tennis coach at a local university here in St. Paul, Bethel University. But Drew, you also have ties to some other universities in, in the sense that you played tennis and you're an All-American at St. Thomas University. And St. Thomas and Bethel, let's just say, are pretty bitter rivals in football. And you were inter, inter, uh, inducted into the St. Thomas Athletic Hall of Fame this last fall. And it was, it was done so at the Bethel-St. Thomas game in St. Thomas. I bet that was a wonderful experience where everybody just loved you on the field. 
Well, <laughs> well, thanks for the great introduction and a way to introduce me. But no, it was <laughs> it was a it was quite the honoring uh, situation. I was obviously honored to be inducted, but to to be on both sides, wondering uh, which which was my true home at, at that point in time was, uh, and to have people on both sides saying what is going on with this guy was quite the experience. But I, I certainly was honored. Well, you've also been honored as the Maya Coach of the Year, and I know you spend a lot of time with young men. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the program this morning is Carmen and I had a chance to have a conversation around an article that uh, made some waves around nationally around just the lack of mentoring of young men and how young men really don't even know how to start a family. They don't know how to start a career. They really have been sort of cast adrift by the breakdown of the family and don't have a lot of role models and mentors. So I'm curious because your role obviously is to teach them how to play tennis and do tennis well, but your role is bigger than that. And so what, what is your heart for mentoring? I know you've talked about it over the years, but this is something you really care deeply about. Well, absolutely. Being at, being at a school like Bethel and a place where, where the athletics is important, but where, where, and we see our young people grow as people and, and followers of Christ is even, is, is something even more important. And seeing that on a continual basis and seeing that begin as a step from the beginning when they come in their first years, whether they're staying for three years or four years, having them grow and develop. And like you said, to become the men that God wants them to be is something we take even more seriously and is, is, is something even a greater level of success that we experience now that I've been at Bethel for, for eight years to seeing people that have graduated three and four years ago, being the husbands and the fathers that God wants them to be is, is even a, is, is something that's even more rewarding than any success that they could have on the court. Hmm. What do you see when they come in at 18? I mean, you, you and I have been around the ministry world for a very long time. And so there's some pretty unique, I would say, sociological things that have happened over the last 10 years uh, with the Internet and cell phone use and any number of things that, that really have taken shape and anxiety, depression, all of that. What do you, what, is there a sort of a common theme you see among the 18-year-olds as they come into your program just based on their background? Well, I, I think it's it's the, the, the most important thing is to not to assume anything about them that they know or that they don't know. Uh, just the way that they communicate and the lack of communication uh, is is something that's really really real. Uh, but then to see that that grow and develop, we 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 intentionally set up times and situations and circumstances where we allow our players and we we make our players be able to to communicate with each other and to to uh, get the opportunity to share how they're feeling and what they're going through and what they're struggling, so that they you know so they're willing and know how to ask for help. They they know how to help each other. I think is is even a more more important thing. Is uh, is as, as, as freshmen and sophomore, a lot of times they see they. See see the, the upperclassmen being able to do some different things that they would like them to be. And I think they kind of learn from the, from the older students and then they can kind of grow into to those positions as well. And, and then they're able to even to go beyond that, I think, is a, is a really, really neat thing. One of the things that was part of the article yesterday that we read is how lonely men can feel. And, and I know you and I talk about that, too, as we're both in our late 40s. And, and uh, sometimes it's hard to find friendships and, and people to really do the journey with. I, I would imagine being part of a team, being part of something bigger than themselves in, in a tennis program like that, it, it has to sort of help bring them along and grow them and mature them in some ways, as opposed to kind of the hyper individualism and the personal brand and all the stuff that's going on these days. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you go to a school and you, you think of, you think of starting in a situation and a, a circumstance where you don't know anybody, and then all of a sudden you get to be involved with ten or twelve people that you're spending an hour, two hours, three hours on a daily basis together. It makes a difference. It, it makes you be able to open yourself up to get to know somebody, and and that's why that's why different groups and programs, whether it's an athletic program or a, any other different program, is is so important to have our to have our young people be a part of because then they know that. that that sense of belonging and that sense that they're cared about and that, you know, just the opportunities, the growth that, that come from being inside uh, different things other than just sitting in the classroom. Hmm. I know you're both the, the men's and the women's coach. And uh, after the break in a little bit, we'll talk a little bit about the women's team, but uh, getting back to the men's team for a bit, if, if you could sort of build in any specific values or sort of character traits, what, what sort of things do you emphasize for your young men that will empower and equip them as they then head out of their university life and into the world at large? Are there some things that you really say, I, I would love to see this built in them in the context of this team and competition and all of those kinds of things? Well, I think the first and the and the, the starting point for us is that we we talk about getting better every day, mm. uh, we and, and handling the things that we can handle. As as a, as a tennis player, the only two things that we talk about that I can handle, that I can control, is my effort and my attitude. And if I control and give a hundred percent effort, uh, uh, effort and I have 100% the best attitude that God wants me to have, not that I always do that, then I'm growing on a consistent basis. You know, just like I don't see the hair on my hair, head grow, but, I, but it, you know, maybe it doesn't as much as I, as I would like, but, I, <laughs> I, it, but, I, but it does grow. And if, if I'm giving effort and attitude every single day, then it does grow. And, and that, that, that we talk about that in all aspects of life, you know, not just athletically, you know, in my, relations, in my relationships with my friends, and most of all, my relationship with the Lord. You know, if I'm if I'm doing those two things and the things that I can control and that I can handle, then then we actually do become the people that God wants us to be. Mm-hmm. You have a story of uh, any sort of student, kid, athlete uh, coming into the program that you just really saw from the time at 18 to the time of 22 that there just really was significant change that took shape because they were part uh, of something bigger like this than themselves, where these things were emphasized. Oh, absolutely. I, I have many stories. There's a couple of young men that I know of particularly. Uh, I'm blessed with a, a super assist, uh, assistant coach. And, and, we, and, you know, we have, to have, we have to have rules and treat everybody the same. But at the same time, we have to know every single person as an individual and, and to treat them as an individual. I had a young man named Luke who, who uh, honestly probably shouldn't have been on the team uh, just because of the trials, the trials and the situations and the choices that he made. But we knew that God had a, had a plan and a purpose for his life. And, you know, and just seeing the different things that he went through and now being out of school, he got married two years ago. Uh, he loves his wife. He's, uh, he's involved in his local church and, and, you know, and just seeing him go through those different the situations and they did. And <laughs> so far from, you know, from what you would actually want. I could share some of the, the different things that, that, you know, some of the people do, but then being able to handle them and to talk about them and then, and to see where, where they're at right now is, is a really, really rewarding thing. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Drew Fernelius, who's a local tennis coach here at Bethel University. He's actively involved in a number of universities over the years and has been in pastoral ministry as well in the church. And Drew, when we come back from break, I would love to hear some of your perspective about what you would see that the church can help do with our 13, 14, 15, 16-year-olds and, and beyond to sort of empower them at that stage that by the time they get handed off maybe to a Christian university like here at the University of Northwestern, a place like Bethel or some other Christian university, how can we help empower them? And I also want to hear a bit about the girls' perspective. What do 
what do you see in our young girls as well as they're coming into your program? So more with Drew Fernelius next on Mornings with Carmen. Just about 12 minutes before the top of the hour, I'm Peter Kapsner, substituting for Carmen LeBurge this morning, and we're having a lively conversation with Drew Fernelius, who's a local tennis coach here at Bethel University and uh, ties to a number of universities. And Drew, you've also been in pastoral ministry for a number of years. You and I went through seminary together and kind of have been in ministry in different ways. And I'd be curious your thoughts as you continue to be involved in the local church. What do you see that maybe the church can do, just given sort of the changes of our day and the, and the various um, sexual tsunamis that have swept over us, the various technological tsunamis that have swept over us? What would you suggest is the best way to equip young people at those ages of 13, 14, 15 as they're heading towards late adolescence and into early adulthood? Well, I, I certainly wish I had the perfect answer for that one. Yeah. With with a with a fifteen year old daughter, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's something that uh, that I live in and my wife live in every single day. I think, but I think the number one thing is is when you when you say that and you ask that is just to give them a passion for the word. Uh, the word of God is, is 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 the truth and the power that that helps transform our lives. And it, it's something my wife and I are are you know are working with our kids as well is because uh, we want our kids to know the word and to be able to live that out. They need that they and to find a place where they're loved and they're accepted. Uh, you know, so often and you know, having been in youth ministry as, as well, we want a place where our kids can have fun, and I think that's important too. And the the entertainment, but too often the entertainment factor becomes the becomes what the, it's all about instead of instead of a true passion for the word and mirroring that. Mm-hmm. That's well said. Well, I know as you do tennis, you don't just coach uh, the men's team, you also coach the women's team. And I'm curious, what differences do you, do you note in the two different teams and how do you have to adjust as a coach to sort of the adolescent realities of young women versus young men? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I'm the same person uh, to the men and the women. Uh, I think because if, if they know, if I, if I act differently to one or the other, uh, I think that would be a, a disservice. Not that we don't treat them differently because we, we do. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a loud, motivational person when it comes to on court. So obviously I have to tone it down a little bit uh, when it comes to the women and, and some of the sensitivity issues. But I think the most important thing, whether, whether it's a young man or a young woman, they want to see somebody that's true and authentic and loves and cares about them and wants them to get better. Uh, so, so there's some certain things that obviously we do different with the, with the women, with giving them more time to be relational and, and, the, and to take their different time in some different things, but at the same time just being who I am, whether it's be to, whether to be with, with its men's practice first and then the women's to follow. Mm, that's interesting. Do you, do you find a sense of um, teamwork among your women, uh, sometimes more so than men? Is it different? Like how, how do they interact as players with one another? Well, that, that's, that's a, you know, you do, you do have a tendency to see the women more together. I think that, 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 that's a true statement, uh, but it's not always the case, and, and, and it, it can change from year to year. Uh, one of the neat things is to see how they grow and they become the friends together and how they, how they reach out. So obviously, there's some different things that we can do to help them to connect with each other and to share, but what a really, real neat thing as well is having the opportunity to coach 
both teams is to see the interaction between the teams between the two genders is a it's just a neat opportunity because there's some there's some things that they can do as well to you know that that's a, a successful program will do with both genders mm, well and one of the things we talk about when it comes to mentoring young people especially in an era where a, a lot of it is for understandable reasons participation trophies and everybody's doing well all the time and, and there's always this this affirmation i know how much you love that subject but uh, i would be curious about, about how you teach them about how to deal with failure and and especially in the context of you took the women's program and and raised it up some from, from sort of the bottom of the conference that you were on the cusp of the national championships here in this last year but it didn't work out in the end so tell us the story and kind of what the fallout was from that and how you dealt with it well uh you know, I'm a pretty competitive person and we want to win and I want players that want to win, you know, and I took over a program that had never reached the MIAC playoffs. And, you know, I didn't, didn't have a lot of success when I first started and last year becoming a national ranked team and getting all the way to the Mayak championship, but then losing at the end, uh, you know, it's, it, you have to be able to handle, handle failure. And uh, you, you, you know, just like a, you know, a baseball player that anybody that bats 300, you still got, you got, you got out 700, 70% of the time. And in tennis, you don't win every single point. And uh, on the outside of my door is, is two words that we, that we live by. And it's called what's next. Hmm. And uh, whether you have success or whether you had, whether you had failure, it's what's next. And uh, in, in doing that and, and understanding that the, putting the past behind and moving forward and being able to handle that failure is a lot of times whether or not you're going to be successful beyond that. Mm. And how do we handle that during sort of the tender young ages? Again, going back to the participation trophy piece of it. I mean, I know you're fiery and competitive and, and you want to win, but what would you suggest uh, sort of in young people's lives uh, where we try to balance the need for affirmation, where we don't really shove somebody down in their failure, and yet at the same time, we allow them to fail. To fail. I, I would imagine it's healthy on some level, even at really early ages. Oh, absolutely. You have to, you have to handle the failure and you have to talk about the failure and you have to, you have to talk about that. What, what, what are you going to do when you, when you hit the bottom on how are you going to move up? How are you going to handle, how are you going to handle success and how are you going to handle the failure uh, is, is really, really important. Colossians 3.23 is a, is a super important verse because it says that doing everything to the best of my ability, because that's what God wants for me. And, and, and that best, the best of his is if the, of doing doesn't necessarily mean that I can win. If I'm giving my the hundred percent attitude and effort, and the person that I'm playing against is better than me, I might still lose. But that doesn't that doesn't mean that I'm a failure. Sometimes defining what failure is failure failure is is a lack of trying and a lack of effort. Mm-hmm. Failure doesn't mean that doesn't mean that I lost that. And that's the same. It's the same thing in life. And it's the same thing that, that we're doing that. And, and a lot of times if we're only talking about whether or not we win or loss, then, then, then the failures are that much harder and that much more difficult to recover from. Mm, we're talking with tennis coach Drew Fernelius. And Drew, uh, we just have a couple minutes left and maybe one last question then. Uh, I, what is the balance in your mind about being uh, fiery and competitive on the court when you're taking on the competition and really desperately desiring to win with balancing the fact that we're all human beings walking this out together? What do you, what do you teach your young people about that? Because life can be competitive at times, and how do we walk out the balance there? Well, I... Uh... I, I think the walk out the balance is, is 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 to strive for that every single day and and to see who God wants you to be and to and to and to have that success whether or not whether or not I win and I'm, I win twenty straight or I, I lose twenty straight is is not necessarily you know the defining factor in my life the defining factor in my life is knowing that I'm a I'm a, I'm a child of the King first 
and that and that I'm becoming the person that he wants me to be first. Uh, I'm not a believer in participation trophies, <laughs> but I am I, I, I'm a believer that uh, we we have to we have to set the goals and and the work the hardest we can with the gifts and the talents that God has given me so that I can achieve some things. But you know what? Sometimes sometimes at the end of the line, if I didn't get that trophy that I set my heart my heart out to, if I know that I put my heart out there for my friends, for my teammates, and I worked along the way, and I look I can look back on the journey and I can see that that's that's really where the joy and that's really really where the successes were actually probably more than that trophy at the end anyway. Mm, that's great stuff, Drew. I know you're up late last night with your first practice of the winter up until about eleven o'clock. So thanks for getting up early this morning and talking about mentoring our young men and our young women here on Mornings with Carmen. My pleasure. We'll uh, take a short break and come back and wrap up the first hour of our show and preview what's coming up next here on Hour 2 this morning here on Mornings with Carmen. You know, Paul Pro, one of the things I appreciate that conversation with Drew is that really embedded and, and underpinning that conversation is there's a sense of initiation that's happening in those mm-hmm. four years from 18 to 22 years old when kids, young people are just part of something that is beyond themselves. And I think about historically in our world, usually there is some kind of process of initiation where you go from the the age of youth and adolescence and you're sort of taken out of that and and disoriented a bit and when you reemerge in society at large you something has shifted something has changed and you're ready now to be a part of functioning society and we don't have a lot of that in american no. culture today no and you know i i see people on the internet saying well schools should be teaching this and that you know balancing checkbook true right we got to be a little more holistic. I mean, we, what are what are we doing as parents, and then just as society to make sure we are bringing these young people up in a framework that they can understand? And you, you talk a lot about that grand narrative of the kingdom. Yeah, that's part of it. That grand narrative. Yeah. What are they part of? As people, as individuals, what are they part of this greater thing? Yeah, I think it's the most important thing we can do as parents and as pastors and as teachers and, and any of our spheres of influence is that we are not raising our young people to be whatever they want to be and set them loose as individuals fragmented from one another, but the sense that we actually are raising them to be part of a bigger story. And Drew referenced the idea of anchoring his own children the best he can in the Word. And the Word really is that place where we get exposed to the to the big figures of our faith and this great story in which we live as something bigger. And we'll keep talking about that next in hour two as Dr. Jim Bilby will join us and we'll talk about life in a post-Christendom world. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.